Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to read a short story from the last chapter of Win Without Competing entitled The Right Fit and Approach to Life. Homegrown, the process and the product. A chubby six-year-old girl with long chestnut-colored corkscrew curls walked proudly hand-in-hand with her dad through the streets of Brookline, Massachusetts, the birthplace of John F. Kennedy. Her father, the cantor of a synagogue, seemed to know everyone. He would greet and talk to person after person. The little girl listened to every conversation intently while playing with her curls. After each conversation, her father asked, asked his daughter, what did we say? He did not want her to recall the words that were exchanged, but the meaning behind the words. He wanted her to explain with whom her dad was dealing, so she would never miss the, mere, the real message. Throughout her adulthood, he continued to teach her the most important lesson of her life. You must understand with whom you're dealing. I was that little girl and the cantor who taught me was my dad. And his lessons did not stop with analyzing conversations. At age seven, I told my dad that I was planning to run away from home. I can still hear the torrents of rain beating on the roof of our home on the scheduled day of my departure. What did my dad do? He helped me pack my little pink suitcase He dressed me in my matching pink raincoat and hat. Then he handed me my umbrella and stepped back. I walked to the front door and peeked out, observing the flooded streets. Then I simply closed the door quietly. My dad and I never discussed what happened. He knew with whom he was dealing and that I was too intelligent to leave. At age 10... My dad told me I had executive ability. He gave me a stack of bills in his checkbook and showed me how to fill in the amounts so I could pay each bill. I immediately got to work. When my dad came home, he asked to see the checks. I told him I signed his name to each check, stuffed and stamped the envelopes, and mailed the checks. Astounded, he laughed. He erroneously assumed that I would only fill in the amount of each payment because that was all he had taught me to do. He forgot 
that you had taught me a more important lesson as well, to understand the real message. That's why I finished the job for my dad the same time for his personal pleasure. He expected the bank to return the checks to him and couldn't believe it when the bank did not recognize that the signature on the checks was not his. They never did. He proudly reported to my aunts and uncles that he had found an executive assistant, his 10-year-old daughter. My dad was the right fit for me. He knew how to mentor me using his own method to help me function effectively in a complex world using highly developed interpersonal skills. The ultimate outcome, I was successfully homegrown to succeed. Understanding what the right fits are for you, finding and capturing them will change your personal and professional life. The right fit method incorporates the mindset, tools, and strategies to achieve success in every aspect of your life. Searching for a new job? Walk down the right fit road and hear you're hired. Now, listen to learn about my right fit method from today's interview. David B. Opton, CEO and founder of Executive. My guest is David Opton, who founded Executunet in 1988, the leading Internet-based business and career network for senior-level executives and professionals with salaries above 150000 After holding high-level human resources executive positions at Sterling Drug International and Xerox Corporation, Mr. Opton left the employee nest to become a highly successful entrepreneur. Welcome, David, to Win Without Competing. Thanks, Arlene. I'm delighted to be here. Take us back to your childhood. Where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Well, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, 1939. So that was just before World War II. Uh, my father was uh, had just uh, gotten out of graduate school at Yale, and uh, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he joined the Army Air Force, or Army Air Corps at that time, and so the next few years, we just kind of moved around, went to Pennsylvania, ended up in Florida, and uh, just after the war in uh, Louisiana, and when the war was over, uh, my father um, who was a zoologist and physiologist, felt that he had fallen pretty far behind in terms of what had gone on in his chosen field. So he took a teaching job at what was then called the North Dakota Agricultural College in Fargo, North Dakota. So our family moved up there when I was in the second grade, and uh, we stayed there until, uh, until I was in the seventh grade, and then we moved back to New Haven. How did you feel as a child when you had to keep moving around? Was it difficult in terms of making friends? Um, I don't know. I think in the early years it, it really didn't affect me that much because I was you know, too young to really sort of register, and I was always, uh, for whatever reason, I guess a fairly outgoing kind of a, uh, kind of a person. My, I remember my father and mother telling me that when 
I would, uh, would they would drive my dad to the to the to the air base, and I would hand flowers to the MP at the at the gate. So oh, I don't know. That's I, nice. Huh? Well, I don't know. I just did. I remembered that. But anyway, so I I didn't have that much difficulty in I don't think in making friends. Although when we moved to Fargo, uh, we were moving from Louisiana. So and I was uh, you know in the second grade. So I had developed a pretty strong uh, Southern accent. And when I moved to Fargo, of course, um, it, it stuck out like a sore thumb. So uh, I took a, took a fair amount of ribbing for that, as I recall. Uh, but other than that, it didn't seem to get in the way too much. Were you an only child, or did you have siblings? No, no, no. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Older brother is, is three years older than I am. The younger brother is five years younger. How did you get along with them? Ah, I think quite well. Um, uh, in fact, my older brother and I, when we when we lived in Fargo, actually did a great deal together. Uh, I remember, uh, in particular, uh, it was oh, it turned into some kind of a um, uh, kind of like a ceremony each year, and we sort of prided ourselves on being the first kids in line when the swimming pool opened in the summertime. So we would, uh, you know, sort of camp out there the night before and uh, try to be the first ones in the pool and all that sort of thing. So I got along with him pretty well, although uh, my older brother is, is a lot more, I think, reserved than I am. So, uh, um, you know, sometimes when I tried to pull the routine of you can't pick on me because my older brother is here, that didn't always work. <laughs> what activities did you enjoy as a child? Um, hmm. Trying to think. I, I, I guess, uh, uh, well, living living in Fargo, North Dakota, where you know the the joke is that there, you know, it's there's there's uh, you know two two dates. There's <laughs> winter and the Fourth of July. So we there were a lot of winter sports there, and so I got into uh, I got into skating very early in in uh, uh, you know when we got there because you could skate from you know basically. Uh, probably October on, and so I uh, was very engaged in skating. In fact, um, uh, later on became a pretty serious figure skater when I was, uh, when I was younger. So I did that and, and, you know, the other stuff that kids mostly do, baseball and football and that sort of thing. Let's fast forward, you. Uh, you have a bachelor's from Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And I know you initially started at Oberlin and then transferred. Right. What what happened? Take us into your confidence and tell us what happened. <laughs> well, what happened, I think, is not a that typical is not a typical of of a lot of kids. Um, uh, I went to a uh, I went to a a, um, a school in New Haven called Hopkins Grammar School, which was a day school prep school. Uh, which which I will tell you right now saved my uh, not only my academic life but probably was more responsible for kind of what has happened to me since than than any other experience I think I've had on an, on the educational front in terms of what they did for me. But in either case, uh, at that time when you went to school, uh, where you went to college was very dependent on the recommendation of the headmaster of the school. And for whatever reason, he thought Oberlin would be a good place for me. Uh, so I went to Oberlin. I loved it. Um, but I certainly was not, you know, kind of tuned in to the idea of, of, you know, that college was really supposed to be for serious stuff. So I spent most of my time 
you know, riding motorcycles, playing football and lacrosse, and 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 going to class from time to time. From time to time. <laughs> and, That's a good well, way of explaining it. Well, Oberlin, Oberlin was is. Uh, I don't know if if the listeners are aware of this, but but at that time, and I think even today, it was it's a it's a small liberal arts school. Uh, with with a reputation for being very very progressive on a lot of uh, a lot of fronts, and back in 1957, uh, you know, for example, the the school was on the honor system. Um, you know, you there was no mandatory if you you know you didn't have to go to class if you didn't want to. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of freedom that was not uh, um, you know followed at a lot of other more more maybe more traditional educational institutions, and so I sure took advantage of that. And, and by the end of my freshman year, um, uh, I got a letter from the school that, that simply said that, you know, Dave, your, your grades are okay, but they're not where they ought to be. You're not working up to your potential, and we think that you need to go do something else until you appreciate the opportunity that you have here. And um, when you've done that, let us know, and we'll be happy to uh, have you back. So when that happened... Um, Obviously, I showed my parents the letter, and my father, uh, who was, uh, as I said, was a zoologist and physiologist, and certainly uh, valued education a lot. With two uh, PhDs, am I correct? Dave? That's right. Yeah, and he he had gone to Yale, and and anyway, he was uh, he he valued that sort of thing a lot, and uh, so he said to me, "I'll tell you what, um, uh, you know, maybe if if we have you pay for this rather than me pay for this." Uh, you'll develop more of an appreciation for, you know, kind of what this is all about. So um, that's that's what I did. And he, he they gave me a, a small inheritance that I got from my grandmother. Um, I went away to a, to a um, kind of a, uh, I guess a junior college, I'm not sure what you would call it, the, the following year, and did extremely well and, and went back to, uh, you know, was readmitted to Oberlin with no loss in class standing, could have gone back as a junior, but by then I, I was married. And since I was paying for it, even if I hadn't been married, I couldn't afford to go back there. Um, so, but, but anyway, I was married, so I had to find a school, A, that I could afford, and, and B, that had married housing, and that turned out to be Indiana. Okay. Um... So now we know why you probably want to... more than you want to know, but well, that's fine. No, that's fine. Um, let's go a bit further. After you were graduated from college, mm-hmm. what was your first job, and how did you get it? Um, I got it through uh, an interview on campus, and and I was uh, hired as a uh, what was then called a personnel and industrial relations trainee. Uh, by the Win- Winchester Western Division of Olin Matheson Chemical Corporation uh, at their really, plant in New Haven. Did you really understand what that position would be? Not really. No, that's yeah. why I had a feeling. So no, they, I, it was. No, nope, they, <laughs> they offered me a job. Yeah, you were you were happy. Okay. Sure. Uh, let me ask you this: Do you remember what transpired when you went out for the interview? Um. Actually, I don't. Uh, the interview that I that I really remember when we were taking interviews um, was the one I had with J. Walter Thompson because they were also on campus. Ah, so what and, happened with J. Walter? Well, that Thompson? was it, that was interesting because it's one of those things where you know part of 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 
you know, kind of career planning or, or, or life experiences is, you know, you learn things like that. So one of the things that they always tell kids in college is, you know, take as many interviews as you can, uh, you know, for the practice and so forth and so on. So J. Walter Thompson was one of the first companies to come to campus. So I signed up for the interview. I walk into this interview. It's one of these, you know, typical 15-minute college uh, interviews. And uh, at the end of the interview, the, the guy says to me, uh, well, Dave, I'll tell you what, we've, uh, here's an application. I'd like you to fill this out and, uh, and send it back. And so I walked out of there and said, wow, this is, this is pretty easy. This is great. So, uh, but then I looked at the application, which turned out to be four pages, uh, which uh, the first page was demographics, and the second and third was you had to pick, I think, three or four advertisements, and in 50 words or less, uh, write why you thought they were good or bad, and then you had to submit a thousand-word autobiographical sketch. And so I did all that, forgot about it completely, and about, I don't know, a month and a half or two months later, I get this call saying, we'd like you to come to New York for an interview. And I'm sitting there saying, who pays for that? <laughs> they said, we will. I said, oh, good. So they were going to pay for the interview, and I thought, well, that's good, because I lived there, or close to there, and I could, you know, set up other interviews when I was there. And so, uh, anyway, short story, I, I went to J. Walter Thompson, I got there at I think 8 or 8.30 in the morning, and I ended up interviewing with a different person every half hour until 5.30 in the afternoon. Did you and, know what position you were being interviewed for? Uh, it was, I don't know, some kind of a trainee position that paid $75 a week. Okay. And, and um, by the time I got back to the HR guy's office at 5.30, I had an excedrin headache like you wouldn't believe, <laughs> and, 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 a, and a very strong belief that advertising was not for me. Now, why did, now that's very interesting, because I know when we spoke before, mm-hmm. you said that when you were graduated from college, you didn't really know what direction you were going to take. So right. with advertising, why did you decide it wasn't the right fit after your whole day affair at J. Walter Thompson? Uh, I, I don't know. I just felt it was kind of like um, I thought it was too intense. Uh, I thought a lot of, of what... Uh, one of the things they did at that time was each person's office, I guess, at a certain level, they were allowed to decorate it any way they chose. So there was a very wide variety of, of you know, sort of motifs. I, I don't know. I think I thought it was a little pretentious. Um, and I just, it, for reasons I really, it just sort of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. You weren't comfortable, I guess. It didn't feel like a, a cultural no. fit, apparently. Right. Going felt, further, it felt a little artificial to me. Going further, tell us what happened at Olin, because I think that is an interesting beginning to a career that really started you off in a long-term direction, which evoked lots of passion in you. So tell us what happened at Olin. Hmm. Well, um that was a time when, when a lot of companies had very sort of structured training programs, uh, particularly for kids coming out of college. So um, I, I went into this program, and it was like you spent a month or two in this department, a month or two in that department, and so forth. Uh, I had never been inside a factory in my entire life. Um, the Winchester Western Division of Olin uh, was the largest employer in the city at the time. Um, the I think there were like 3,000 production and maintenance employees there, part of the machinist union, so it was a unionized uh, operation. 
Uh, plus, uh, they had a number of other facilities there as well. But I was in the Winchester Western Division where they made firearms. And um, so I started out in the employment department and uh, went from there to compensation to uh, um, safety and a number of them. Anyway, the last stop on, on the rotation was labor relations. And they did that on purpose uh, because they were also going into a contract year. So what turned what was supposedly uh, you know a two or three month kind of a stint actually turned out to be a, a more than that because as uh, they ended up having their first strike uh, in in many many years that uh, that particular year. So I got a, a, a chance to stay there for quite a while, and um, the more I the more I got involved in it, uh, the more I the more I liked it because uh, I, it was just an opportunity to uh, uh, I was spending a lot of time with. Um, uh, with with people in the plant, I was out in the plant a lot, um, and I just it was to me it was exciting. In fact, one of the most fun things I did during that strike was because you know when you're on strike there's no production, so they sent me out and they said what we want you to do is to write a daily strike report. So I would roam around, <laughs> talking, interviewing pickets, and you know just writing up generally what the tone was here, there, and everything else, and they they seemed to like it a lot. And uh, and I enjoyed writing it, and so they, uh, anyway, they went, at the end of the rotation, they said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "If I'm going to stay in this thing, this is what I want. You know, this is the part that's exciting to me. The rest of it, I thought, was too routine." Okay, so labor relations turned you on. Yep. Tell us about what you created, the so-called voluntary disqualification. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Okay, um, one of the reasons I liked. Uh, one of the things they had me do was, um, uh, you know, when you have a unionized shop, you have a grievance procedure. If anybody has a, you know, a complaint or thinks that the contract's been violated and so forth and so on, so you have a, a grievance procedure. And my job uh, was to uh, hear grievances up, up through and including the third step, which is a step just before arbitration. And I wrote job descriptions and, and so forth and so on. One of the biggest problems that they had at the time was most of the most of the plant was on a piecework system uh, that those were you know back in the days when there was a lot of industrial engineering and you know you got paid on piecework for for a lot of stuff um, so people would bid on different jobs and different jobs paid more or less for whatever they were doing but if somebody got into a job and for some reason or another was were not able to keep up or uh, produce uh, you know the quality work they were supposed to and so forth there was a provision in the contract that allowed the company to disqualify them after going through a uh, uh, procedures of you know are they fully trained and so forth and so on and it, it, it created a lot of animosity and people were uh, uh, you know being disqualified all over the place and we were spending enormous amount of time in, in grievance hearings you know going through um, what it what kind of felt like to the employee uh, being prosecuted for not being able to, to perform this job and so forth. And so um, uh, what, I, what I finally did was I thought, well, you know, maybe the way to change this is to not make it so adversarial and, and try to create something that, where the employee doesn't feel that they're being put upon this way. Because in a lot of cases, I knew perfectly well that the employee couldn't do it but was really fighting back because they felt he was being, um, you know, beat up on and, 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 and 
demeaned and, and so forth. So I, I, I created a, a form called a voluntary disqualification form and, and wrote it up in a way that it said to the employee that, that, that they were making the decision to take themselves out of this particular job. And, and I put a clause in there that said, you know, I, uh, I, Dave Opton, you know, choose to exercise my right under article such and such of the, uh, of the contract to uh, to, dis- to uh, disqualify myself from this position and exercise my right to bump into you know whatever job it would be and that turned a lot of people around because they felt that hey this isn't you know this isn't such a bad thing this is something I'm doing rather than some somebody doing something to me I think it was a brilliant strategy as well as pitch frankly well I don't know it just I didn't think it through I just uh, I I mean, it just sort of came to me that, that it seemed like, you know, why not try to do that? The other thing I tried to do in, in doing that also was, was to try to go talk to the employees without a union steward around and without, without the foreman in the room and make it a much, much less formal kind of a procedure. And initially I had to be a little bit careful doing that so that the union didn't get upset, but I also had very good relationship with the stewards. Um, and so they would, you know, sometimes allow me to do a lot of things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have allowed me to do because, you know, they guard that pretty carefully. And you say, well, we don't want you talking to anybody without the steward there and that sort of thing. Well, clearly you have very strong interpersonal skills, and you were only in your, I guess, early 20s at that time. Yeah, I was too young to know any better. Well, you spoke up, and you spoke up in a way to really help people. Um, would you say it was at that time that you started to become passionate about labor relations? Uh, I, 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 w- I don't know if it was labor relations uh, as such, but I, I really was found that I got a lot of job satisfaction out of doing things that seemed to help resolve a problem. Um, and I guess at that time in my life, yeah, I was, I was passionate about labor relations. Um, but but I think where the job satisfaction was coming was I was working in an environment which, generally speaking, is is perceived to be adversarial, and tried to to create a a relationship with uh, with people that was that was a lot more collaborative. And when I was able to do that, I felt good about that. Your next position was with the city of New Haven. How mm-hmm. did that come about? Where you became director of labor yeah. relations? Um, well, at that time, as I said, I was was pretty psyched about about labor relations, but I was also only about twenty five or twenty six years old. And one of the big steps in labor relations is being able to try arbitration cases and or represent the employer at the bargaining table and um, in industry. Certainly at that time, that was not something that you were going to be able to grow into at that age, and it probably was 15 or 20 years ahead of me if I was, or if I was to stay in a more traditional setting. But what, as it happened, um, the state of Connecticut passed a Municipal Labor Relations Act in 1965, which mandated collective bargaining for towns and cities. And so the city decided that they were going to hire somebody full-time um, in that role. And uh, so when this, the director of administration for the city, um, you know, had to find somebody to do this, and he happened to be either a neighbor of or friends of the personnel manager at an operating unit that was in the building next door to where I worked. 
was a was a company called United Nuclear Corporation at the time, and I guess they were two of them were talking at some point, and Dennis said, you know, I, I'm looking for this kind of a person, and uh, this this fellow that I knew because because we used to have lunch and stuff a lot because we were so close together said, well, you you know, why don't you talk to Dave? So we did, and uh, so there I was, and they they hired hired me as the director of labor relations for the for the city. And I was very excited to do that because I thought, you know, even if, even though I knew municipal labor relations was going to be a lot different than, than working for a public company, uh, the opportunity to get that kind of experience at that age I thought would be a terrific thing, you know, to put on my resume, and so I should take advantage of that. Tell us what you accomplished there. I mean, clearly at a very early age, you not only fought divergently, seeking new solutions for difficult situations, but you also exhibited the ability to take charge, to manage the process. So what did you do to take charge as, as the director of labor relations? Because after all, you were the first person in the, in the position. Hmm. Well... <laughs> As I said before, I was too young to, to really know what I was getting myself into. But, but nevertheless, you did. <laughs> well, and yeah. That, that's what's brilliant about uh, it all. Well, you just, I don't... You just succeeded. I, 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 you know, as I said, I was, I don't know. I, anyway, yes, I did. And basically what I, what I was trying to do was to kind of learn initially what the differences, the real differences were between municipal labor relations and and labor relations that, that went on within it within a public company. And I immediately found that there were a lot of major, major differences, uh, not the least of which is that, that you know, when you're working for, for a city where you're not talking about a for-profit operation and that sort of thing, if, if you think some things are dysfunctional or, or not particularly well organized in, in, a, in a company environment, that is nothing compared to what it's like with a uh, you know, in, in, in a municipal setting. It was just, it was unbelievable. So I guess what I, what I tried to do more than anything else was, was to try to put a process in place and, and to try to get things, you know, reasonably, at least tried to get them, you know, somewhat organized and, and non-politicized. Do you remember uh, negotiating any kind of contracts at all during this period of time? Oh yeah, yeah. I had uh, at the time I went there. There were I've forgotten now the total number of unions, but I had all the unions except the teachers, and so that meant police, fire, public works, uh, cafeteria workers. That's four, and there were there were. Uh, I think I had the school custodians, but not the teachers, and I. Um, been so long ago now I've forgotten but anyway so I negotiated contracts for you know for all of those and um, how did uh, it you was... manage to do that without a law degree Dave was well, that a help or a hindrance do you think well it's funny I, a lot of people thought I well a lot of cities went out and hired lawyers to do that um, I think I think the reason I was able to do it was because if I go back to Olin remember I said there was a, that was there were 3,000 employees there Right. In, a, in a unionized environment. So in terms of, A, understanding what that labor agreement was all about, and I'd been through a couple of different negotiations at that point, not that I was representing the company, but I was there the whole time, um, and indeed drafted a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the language as, as part of what they asked me to do. But 
the point is we had a lot of grievances there. We, we used to do 100 arbitration cases a year where most companies, you know, if, if they were doing one or two a year, it was catastrophic. We were doing them all over the place. And so I've had a lot of experience uh, in, in over five years in going through a lot of this kind of stuff. And I knew what negotiate, you know, how negotiations went. And uh, I, I, I knew, uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to settle grievances and so forth, that, that's a negotiation all by itself in many cases. So it wasn't like I hadn't had some exposure to what this process was like and what, what the relationships were all about and, and that sort of thing. But still in all, I mean, you had to have understood contracts well enough because apparently you worked without a lawyer or there were lawyers right. you worked without a lawyer. I mean, Well, I we would have the, the, the – uh, once, once, the, once we had reached an agreement in principle, um, yeah, the, the, um, he wasn't there in the negotiations, but obviously we would, we would have to show the agreement to the, uh, um, you know, the town council or, or, you know, something like that, but – they really never got got involved that much. Okay. It wasn't wasn't that? You know, I don't know. I just didn't didn't think about it that. In that well, you in were that young, way. so you just did the job. Well, yeah, and I was very used to. I mean, I knew what contract language was. I'd been dealing with it for five years. I know how it reads, and um, and besides which, it really at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I said we had 100 arbitration cases a year. It was really pretty funny. You, you know, you go into arbitration. Somebody asked me one time, well, what does an arbitrator do? And I said, well, what an arbitrator does is comes in and tells you what you meant when you wrote something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I got pretty pretty adept at, at, at trying to be pretty clear. How long were you with the city? Uh, five years. Okay. Then you went off to Rouse Company. What right. happened? What was that all about? I know it's a developer. What What did they develop, and why did you go there? Well, the reason I, 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 I there were two two reasons. That, uh, first of all, the reason that I left the city was because um, the the incumbent mayor, who had been there for like fifteen or sixteen years, uh, a guy named Richard Lee, who at the time uh, um, was the uh, president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and the reason he was was because New Haven had developed a a reputation for being a very very progressive city in terms of uh, redevelopment and and things of that nature. Um, he he left office, and I was not crazy about the guy who replaced him, so I had made up my mind I was I was going to leave. But the real the the impetus for the Rouse Company was I happened to be there during the uh, during the '60s when um, there were a lot of race riots in, in the U.S., as you may remember. And uh, New Haven certainly uh, had its share of those, as along with Detroit and L.A. and a lot of others. And um, I was, you know, like anybody else, I mean, I'd been with the city for five years. I could kind of see what was going on and, and, and so forth. And I was very, very concerned about the, the uh, you know, the problems facing, uh, facing urban America still am for that matter, but I was very concerned about it then. I was also at that time became very, very active in the, in the uh, New Haven JCs. Anyway, long story short, um, um, the, the Rouse Company, which was a shopping center developer initially, but Jim Rouse, who ran that company, was, it was a true, one of the true visionaries, I think, in, in the U.S. And he um, 
uh, one of one of his dreams was to build a planned city, and uh, taking a lot of the lessons that that he learned from observing what went on when Reston, Virginia, uh, was built, um, secretly purchased uh, 17,000 acres of Howard County, Maryland, and got them to change the zoning law so he could build Columbia, Maryland, as a, as a as a planned as a planned city, and. Um, my boss at, at New Haven, who was the director of administration, had had gone to work for the Rouse Company uh, to to direct a project in Hartford, Connecticut. And the Rouse Company said, "We need somebody to come down and be the operations person for a thing called the Urban Life Center, which was going to be a conference center that did workshops on teaching other cities across America what the Columbia process, how it worked." Um, both economically and otherwise, and so he said, "Well, you, you know, why don't you talk to to Dave?" So they did, and I went down there and I interviewed, and I was just so struck with with Jim Rouse and and, and the vision that he had. Plus, when I left New Haven, as I said, I was was extremely concerned um, with what was happening to, to the cities, and I felt that if 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 private industry did not get you know very heavily involved in trying to to deal with these kinds of issues, that that you know, we were we were in really really big time trouble. So even though I had a a job offer at that time from the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and also was a a candidate um, for executive vice president of the USJCs, uh, I I just said no. I wanna I wanna I wanna go try to do this because I think it's hopefully going to do some good. So that was the right fit for you, the Rouse Company. Yep. And what happened there? Because I think you were a little disappointed. Well, you know, th- what happened was the, the Urban Life Center, while it was a great idea, uh, it didn't make any money. And for a whole bunch of reasons I won't, I won't bore you with, but it didn't, and they finally couldn't support it anymore. So after I'd been there, I don't know, I guess a couple of years, um, you know, they, they just closed the place. So I had to, had to go find myself another job. And I'm gathering that the next place that you went was the Xerox Corporation. How yep. did you get there? You were there from 71 to 83. What, yep. what prompted you to go to Xerox? Well, it, it's kind of like what we talk to our members about all the time. It was through networking. In this case, uh, uh, my wife uh, was, uh, had been a customer rep for Xerox uh, before or when I met her, and um, uh, so when I was looking for a job, she called uh, her uh, the, the fellow who was the branch manager for her when she was in New Haven, and uh, said, "You know, my husband's looking for a job, and he's he's kind of like uh, at that time I think they were calling it personnel, not labor relations or industrial relations, but anyway, he's, he's that's what he does." And so Don said, "Well, you know, send me his resume, and I'll I'll send it along to uh, to someone," which he did, and he sent it to the. Uh, uh, to the guy who was the the personnel manager for Xerox's Mid Atlantic region, and they asked me to come in for an interview, and I guess and uh, you know made an error in judgment and hired me. <laughs> well, let's hope they didn't make an error in judgment and hire because if they did, they had uh, 12 years of an error in judgment. <laughs> what did true. you accomplish during that 12-year period? I'm just kidding. Um, of course. Uh, well, I, I did a, a number of, of jobs. I started out there uh, actually in their employment area because that's where they had a need to, to start with, but also because it's a great place 
actually to learn what a company does because when you're in the employment area, you know, you cover everything. You're not just in one narrow uh, one narrow thing. So uh, it was a great way to learn. But I went through a number of different positions there at the region uh, in, 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 uh, in Washington. And uh, just before I transferred out of there, uh, I was appointed as a personnel operations manager, which was a kind of like a, 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 a uh, what would I call it, a, a circuit riding personnel manager. In other words, I had responsibility for about eight branches uh, throughout the Midwest and, and some of them in the, in the Mid-Atlantic region. And I would go from branch to branch to branch doing, you know, sort of a, a generalist personnel kind of a, a kind of a role. It was a job that I loved because um, I, was, I was in the field and uh, just had a terrific opportunity to build relationships with, with, with people who were, as, as I say even today, were out there firing with live ammunition, um, uh, you know, who were really out in the field and making sales and making service calls and, process, you know, and it was just kind of fun. And I really enjoyed it. I did that for, I guess, a couple of years, and then I was asked to become the personnel person for the Xerox Latin American group in, in Greenwich. And so I went up there for a couple of years, and then they uh, asked me to, to come over and be the, uh, uh, run the personnel department for, for Xerox corporate headquarters. Which I, which I did for seven years. Why do you think they kept promoting you? What did you achieve for them? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I would say this is Xerox um, at that time, and I think even today. I mean, it is a uh, it's a it's a sales and marketing driven company, um, and sales. Folks in particular, as I think you probably know, generally, uh, you know, tend to be um, have a lot of energy. Uh, they like to get things done. Um, they they sometimes can be kind of frenetic. They're competitive. Uh, they're enthusiastic, and um, uh, you know that that's a lot of my personality. Um, I, I mean, I used to tell people all the time, I'm not. I don't, I don't perceive myself to be particularly strategic, but if you give me something to do, you will only have to tell me once, uh, and you won't have to worry about whether or not it gets done. Uh, I, I will make it happen full stop. And, and, you know, people tend to start to rely on that after a while, and, and it's so that's what I did. So whatever they wanted you to do, you got the job done, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why did you leave? Um, for, primarily because I, at that stage in my life, I said, you know, I think I want to be a, you know, a vice president of personnel when I grow up. Okay. And, and Xerox is is at that time was about a. I don't know how many billion dollar company, but it had like about 130 or 40,000 employees. But the short story was I wasn't about to be a VP of, of, uh, of personnel, um, uh, you know, anytime soon, given, given the, the, the number of folks that were running around. And plus, I would have had to live in Rochester, which I really, really wasn't excited about doing. Um, and so I, I said, you know, I think I want to do this. And a headhunter came and blew in my ear one day, and, and I had the opportunity to do it. And I said, okay, I think I'll go do it. So I did. 
and that's when I joined uh, Sterling and and uh, became the the uh, VP of personnel for their international group. But then you did leave. Why mm-hmm. did you leave there? Because uh, because it was uh, because the company was bought. Um, uh, that was funny because when I was I was switching industries, you know, I'm coming out of office products and going into pharmaceuticals about which I knew nothing, and uh, so one of the things I was trying to explore in my due diligence was, uh, you know, what do you what do you think the chances are of, you know, mergers and all this kind of stuff? Oh, there's never been an, an a uh, unfriendly takeover in the pharmaceutical world and blah blah blah. Anyway, long story short, you you if if you remember what was happening back in the uh, the early 80s, there were a lot of a lot of mergers within the right. pharmaceutical world, and um, and so Sterling was ended ended up being bought by Kodak. So I was part of the acquired company and on staff and uh, and out of a job in very short order at age 48. And what did you decide at that point? At first, I thought, well. You know, the good news was that I hadn't been there long enough to to build up any really strong organizational identity, such as I had with Xerox. I think the hardest career decision I ever had to make was 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 leaving Xerox because I loved it. I still love it, um, but I did, and and so I really didn't have that strong an identity. So the fact that that okay was bought, and I said, well, what the hell? I'll just you know I'll just go get another job with a corporation someplace, and really didn't think about it that much. Until I got out into the marketplace and discovered a few things, but um, so I said, "Well, that's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll go do that." I went out into the marketplace and discovered um, that, and, and even though we were going into a recession at the time, it wasn't like I was having trouble getting interviews. I, I was, I was doing fine on the interview front. Well, but I guess I, you knew how to pitch yourself then. Oh, sure. And and um, well, you say oh sure, but lots of people don't. So that's I mean, oh that's, well. Yeah, lots of people don't. Well, I mean, I I don't I don't know. I just didn't have too too much difficulty getting interviews. I don't really know why exactly. Although, uh, you know, I was I've been living in this area now for a long long time, so I knew a fair amount, fair number of people and that sort of thing. And and being being in the what is now called the HR function, I knew a lot of headhunters and and uh, and people like that. Uh, so I was able to uh, at least let the world know that I was, you know, that I was looking. And so I wasn't having too much trouble getting interviews at all. But what I was finding in, in the interviews was that I was not, uh, my juices were not flowing. I was hearing stories that I'd heard before. Uh, I just was not excited about this uh, for whatever that reason was. And And so after I'd been out in the marketplace for, I don't know, probably six or eight months or so. Um, uh, I think I told you this when we chatted earlier. I, I, right. was, I, was, I was at an interview with, a, with a, a, a pretty big company in New Jersey, started that interview process at about 2 in the afternoon, and left there at about 9 or 9.30 that night. And I remember walking out into the parking lot, getting in my car, and, and you know, sort of thinking to myself as I was driving up the Garden State Parkway and saying, you know, if, if if this guy calls you tomorrow and says, Dave, you know, we really would like you to 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 take this job, and here's a blank check, and fill in the blanks, and uh, you know, what would you do? And I just, it was, I don't know, it was sort of almost like I had an epiphany or something. I just said, you know what? 
um, this is silly. This is not me. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm going to go, if, if I'm going to go through this kind of stuff again, I'm going to do this for myself. I've, I've seen this movie before, and, and so that's what I'm going to go try to do. And so at that point, I really stopped looking on the corporate side totally and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can figure out what, I, you know, what I'm going to do to make a living next, but it's not going to be this. And it was sort of out of that experience that, that I migrated into, uh, uh, you know, into Executive. So when you went, got home from the interview, you told your wife that uh, you were going to do it on your own. What did yep. she say? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think at that point she said, well, okay, if you think that that's something you can do, that's, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, she said, how are you going to, you know, what is it that you think you're going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I've been sort of playing around with this. Uh, at that point, I was involved in a, in a small networking group like a lot of us, uh, like a lot of us are even today. And I said, I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, maybe, maybe I'll just see what this consulting thing is all about. Um, and she said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, well, you know, consultants, you know, get hired by referral. Uh, they don't get hired because they run an ad in the yellow pages or, you know, and I certainly haven't written a book like, you know, so nobody's going to come pounding on my door. You better have a network. And I said, so I'm going uh, to build a network and uh, play with the one that I have, and we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. And I, I, I could afford to do that to some degree because I had a, a really good severance package, and, um, and my kids at that point were, were – a lot further down the educational road than my peer group was. So I could afford to take some financial risks that a lot of, a lot of guys my age could not have taken at that point. So that was, you know, kind of where luck, luck so plays a role. So ExecuNet was seated at that point in 1988. It yep, it what? was. Now I know that you decided to focus on executives who were in 150,000, and of course you were one of them. Uh, is that the primary reason why you selected that group? Um, not so much. It, well, it was, it was. First of all, it, it's it's a it's a seg market segment that I knew because of where I'd worked, so I felt comfortable interacting with with senior level executives. Uh, so it was sort of natural for me to sort of stay in that environment because that was the world in which I'd been living for a long, long time. Um, but the real reason, the, the, the real motivating factor for me in, in deciding to, to really sort of turn this into a business and make my living from it, um, I think really, really grew out of my own personal experience in going through a job search. Uh, even though my background is in human resources, I just, one of the key things and key learnings that I had in going out into the marketplace was that I very quickly begin to, began to understand that there was a huge difference between understanding something on an intellectual level and experiencing it on an emotional level. And I'm talking there about the feeling that, that someone who is in transition and um, feels in terms of just kind of how the marketplace interacts with them and how they're treated and I, I just I said, you know, this is terrible, um, and and it's not right. And there's there ought to be a better way to do this. That I am not a different person today than I was 48 hours ago. It is not my fault that they sold this company. Um, it just 
there's got to be a better way to do this. This is just stupid. And so I, I sat down and I said, all right, look. I said, if I am a, a, a job candidate, what is it that I really want from this process? And the answer in a simplified way came back as, all I really want is an opportunity to compete for a real job um, at a time when it's meaningful and be treated with some measure of dignity. Uh, you know, I know there's I know there's competition, and that's okay. But that's really all I'm asking for. I said, well, all right. If if you're if I'm a recruiter, what do I want? Well, if I'm a recruiter, what I want is is access to qualified candidates at a time when it's meaningful to me. I do not want to get into a fight with somebody over who's qualified and who isn't, and I want confidentiality when I need it. And so I said, okay. Well, if I can if I can create an environment where those elements come into play, there's a need for that. And that was kind of the, the shape of the, of, of the idea. Okay, so that was the seed of the business model yep. then, Dave? Yep, yep. All right. So now you started, when you started in 88, we didn't mm-hmm. have the Internet. And right. And in 95, you did put ExecuNet on the Internet. Mm-hmm. So what did you offer initially and then what has the Internet enabled you to do that you couldn't do at the beginning? Well, um, at the very beginning, um, it, it really was uh, it was really all about jobs. First of all, because of, of when it was. Back in 88 and the early 90s, I mean, that was the last bad recession that we had, particularly in between like 91 to 93 or whatever it was. So there were an awful lot of people uh, running around looking for for jobs. So it was all about jobs, um, and and really not a lot more than that. Um, although I did at that time start writing um, a newsletter that I sent to uh, to everybody every couple of weeks, which I called Execu Notes because I couldn't think of anything more clever to call it, but um, which talked a lot about trying to give some advice and counsel and stuff on. Uh, the process itself and, and, and how they could help each other and help the network and so forth. Uh, so initially it started out that way, but over the years it obviously has grown way, way beyond that in terms of, uh, so we, we are, we're now really truly a, uh, um, a, a career and business network. We've got, I would say right now, the, the makeup of this network is about 60% of people who are currently employed and 40% who are currently in transition. How would we recognize the ExecuNet brand? Um, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I think, I think that a lot of people, a lot, a lot of prospective members call because they put us in a space with a job board because nobody knows kind of where to put us. Uh, so we're sort of there whether we want to be or not, and we really don't perceive ourselves that way at all. Um, what we tell members is this: this is a this is this is something you join just like any other professional group. It's a private network. You join it, um, and 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 we try to provide you with with uh, benefits of membership that will hopefully make you feel that it's worth your while to be a to be a part of it, and that you are taking away from it those things which are helpful to you either on a professional level or a personal level or both. Um, I think the other way that I would like to think that you that people would recognize our brand is that um, 
is 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 the perception of of the the level of of uh, the quality level of the product and service that uh, that that we offer. Uh, we we are very very high touch. Uh, have always been that way. Want to be that way. That's part of being a member. I mean, with the first first probably three to four years that that we started this business, I wouldn't let anybody in here unless I talked to them myself personally. How many employees do you have today? Uh, I think about 55. Okay. The last time I looked. <laughs> Maybe some snuck in while you weren't looking. Well, I tell you, the funny thing of it is, you know, you, you work for a large company like, like Xerox, you know, where the, the, the time the personnel policy manual probably weighed, you know, eight pounds and was, you know, eight or nine inches thick. And <laughs> I'm st- I walk around with, with a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper folded up in my pocket that's got, you know, that's how I know how many people we have on staff. <laughs> what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are struggling? Uh, I, I guess I would say it's, it's more than anything else, I, I think that, that what it, it's about, it's, it's about the, the passion that you feel. I mean, um, uh, I, 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 this is the most exciting thing I have ever done in my life. It is the most satisfying thing from a job point of view that I've ever done in my life. And uh, there's, there's a, I, I don't know whether the passion comes from the satisfaction or the passion comes from being able to see the impact that, that what you're doing has on, on, on the lives of other people. Uh, I'm, I'm, but it, so I think it's really about passion more than anything else, um, because it, it, it's there. There are an awful lot of times when, um, I mean, I can't believe the hours that that, that and neither did my wife. You know, the hours that that, that I that, that we put in that we put into this. Um, I mean, there were there were lots of times I, I ran this business out of my house for about I don't know three or f- maybe it was 1998. Uh, it was probably four years before my wife threw us out, and and um, I mean I was up, you know, two and three o'clock in the morning, a lot, um, just doing all kinds of stuff, and um, so I, I, I guess the word is passion, and I, I'm not sure where that comes from. You would know that better than I would, but uh, I know that that that's what I felt, and it's what I still feel. Now let's look at your personal life. How did you select? I know that you've had two wives. And I'm curious about how many years have you been married now to the second wife? Um, I don't know, uh, pretty close to 40. All right. How did you select the second wife? If you had to create a blueprint of the right fit wife, what would you put on that blueprint? I mean, other other than the fact that they put up with me? Well, that's that's part of it, but uh, let's hear what what qualities. What what were you really looking for? Intelligence, interpersonal skills, chargeness. What were you really looking for? Um, I guess I was looking for for someone who um, 
with with a lot of energy, um, and she definitely has that. Um, somebody who is independent, which she certainly is. Um, uh, I'm not sure what other other qualities there, there were. I do. I mean, this this, this is so um, sounds really silly, but um, uh, when I when I met Marianne, um, I knew. I mean, I, I, it was kind of like one of these things. Like I said, oh man, I don't, I can't be, begin to do. I'm going to marry this person. I can't believe I'm going to do this. And I fought that for probably close to two years because I had, I had only been recently divorced, and I had sort of made a pact with myself that I was not about to do anything on the marital front for three years to make sure that my head was square and I wasn't just doing things. And and I met her, and I said, oh my God, you know, this is. I don't know, we just, it was like instant bonding, and that was that, and I gave her a terrible time for about two years, because uh, she was ready to get married, I wasn't, or at least I kept telling myself I wasn't. And then she finally caught you, Dave? Well, yeah, she, she what happened was, uh, you asked me when I left the city of New Haven, and, and so I knew I had accepted this job in Columbia, and, you know, I said, you know, you 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 better you better ask her to marry you because if you don't, you're gonna, you know, she isn't gonna wait. So that's what I did, and she, thank God, she said yes. And she's, um, I'll tell you this right now, as far as this business is concerned, I absolutely would not have this business had it not been for her. Now, why is that? That's very it's, interesting. No, it's it's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, because when I first started, I wasn't really. I knew there was a business here. I really wasn't running down that road to 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 do that, and and so I would say, you know, can you help me with this or help me with that? She said, sure. And then I remember, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I was into this about two and a half or three years, and she grabbed me by the throat one Sunday night and said, let me ask you a question. You keep talking about Execunet as a, as this business development thing, and you're just kind of doing it as an avocation and so forth. And I've observed that you're working on this seven days a week, and so am I. And could you please help me understand how it is that, you know, you're making a living from this? And, would, and you, by the way, you're spending a lot of your own money on mailings and things like that. And would you please go do something about this? And ah. I said, okay. So I said, yeah, you're right. I probably should. So she helped me, and and um, I mean, in in ways I can't even begin to express because I was out doing a lot of things. She was on the phone all the time, and, and she has a gift. Among other the gifts that she has is she's able to, um, she could hear your voice on the phone, and you'd call her back in three months, and she could remember who you were. And That's it's, amazing. It is amazing, and I used to think it was baloney, but it, I've seen her do it too many times to know that it isn't. I have no idea how she does that. But, I mean, I still have members today who... You know, will call me up and say, "Is Marianne still there?" I said, "Well, she's not here, but she's still there." <laughs> uh, so she has a she builds rapport very, very quickly, and was extraordinarily helpful. Uh, and and just you know, so I went ahead and I did it. Tell us the story of how Marianne came home one day and surprised you with a house. <laughs> well, uh, we lived in. Um, uh, in Weston, Connecticut, for 28 years, which is seven miles from where I'm talking to you, in uh, in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, 
and um, uh, one day about uh, it'd be five years ago in July, Marianne walks in the house one night and announces to me that she had bought a house in Rhode Island. And I just looked at her like, what did you just say? She said, just, I bought a house in Rhode Island. I said, why? I mean, I can't believe you did that. And she said, well, I did. And I said, well, why, why did you do that? And she said, well, one, um, I've always wanted to live by the water. Two, um, you're in the office seven days a week. And since Rhode Island is not as close as we are now, maybe moving to Rhode Island will get you out of the office, uh, if not, you know, so that's part of the reason she did it, because she said, and, and she's right, I mean, it's nothing I ever would have done on my own, I was a- very angry about it, um, but, you know, there's no question that, that it was the right thing to do at, at this stage of our life, and so she just did it, and and I was so angry, as a matter of fact, that I never, I didn't see the house, physically see it until the day we closed. She showed me some pictures and stuff, but I, I just I, I wouldn't wasn't even going to go up there uh, and see it. But it's fabulous. So she did the right thing. Absolutely. How do you balance your personal and professional life? <laughs> I don't. That's why she moved. That's my point. <laughs> <laughs> I was you dying know. to ask that question because you told me before you were a workaholic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't yeah. wait. I couldn't well, wait to get to this question. Yeah, I'm sure. No, of course. Uh, you know, you said, how do, how do you manage your personal life? I would say, well, what personal life? Right. Um, and, you know, that's that's not great, but, you know, I'm I'm getting better. Not terrific, but I'm getting better. Well, I guess Marianne helped you by uh, purchasing the house, which would then entice you to visit there more often. Well, I mean, I go up there. I mean, what I'm doing now is... Um, uh, I have a I have a, a studio apartment here, and I drive down here on Mondays. So I get to, get to the office here uh, at about I would say 10 or 10:30, and I usually work out of here until Thursday, and I try to leave Thursday around noon if I can, um, and go up there and I work out of there on Fridays. So I'm there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and in some cases I'll even sneak out of here on Wednesdays because. And that's particularly true now with through the wonders of modern telecommunications. I mean, I could literally work out of there every day if I really wanted to, uh, but I certainly don't want to do that. I, I think I, I, I want to be here, and, I, and there's a need for me to be here, I think. And so I, I do it, but I, I really I have a nice home office there, and um, for right now it's great. It works fine. Well, Dave, I have to say this has been a great pleasure to have you with me and our listeners. Thank you as well. It was a delightful interview. Well, I'm I'm happy to do it. If it helps somebody, that's great. Thank you so much, and please come back again soon. Okay. Thanks for having me, Arlene. It was a pleasure. Please join me again next Wednesday, May 20th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be Mr. Robert Horton, the chairman of Alchemix Corporation, a cutting-edge alternative energy company, which he established in 1998. An expert in his field, Mr. Horton has been active in energy and environmental technology since 1980. 
Among his activities, he organized, managed, and sold the China Coal Pipeline Company to Enron in 1997. Prior to that, Horton, in partnership with the American Broadcasting Company, organized and created the world's largest travel franchise company. Since childhood, through the influence of his clinical psychologist mother, Robert has been a student of human personality. Beginning in 1975, in addition to his other career interests, he began working on what has become the interviewing method, a precise and comprehensive means of distinguishing core personality traits. In the early 1980s, he founded the Carefree Institute, and with the help of the Educational Testing Service of Arizona State University, developed the interview, a comprehensive personality assessment tool. The interview has been used by tens of thousands of individuals over the last 20 years. To learn more about my Right Fit method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and drbarro.com. To contact me directly, call 310-441-5305. 310-441-5305. Or email drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and here you're hired. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, Career Coach One, and Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.